Welcome to the History Guy podcast, the podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel, and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. This episode of The History Guy is brought to you by Magellan TV, a new kind of streaming service that promises to bring you the best documentaries from around the world. On today's episode, The History Guy is going to talk about beef. First, he will tell the interesting and surprisingly complex story about how cows, beef, and the cattle industry have intertwined with American history and left a deep impression on American culture. After that, you'll hear about the only cut of meat to ever be knighted. Sirloin of Beef. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. There's an old adage that says, you are what you eat. And while that's likely talking most about the health of your diet, it does illustrate the fact that what a culture eats says much about that culture, and likely impacts that culture's history. And when we look at the confluence between diet and culture in America, one food looms large. One food that we eat in larger quantities than almost any other country on Earth. One food that is the primary ingredient in one of the most quintessential of American foods. The hamburger. Beef cattle arrived with the earliest European settlements in the Americas, and beef production and consumption has been a primary driver of American history ever since. Although there were wild bovines in the Americas, notably the American bison, the cattle we use for beef originated in Europe and were brought to the Americas almost as soon as Europeans arrived. On his second expedition in 1493, Christopher Columbus brought some cattle, primarily intended as draft animals. Some of these cattle escaped and feral herds were established. More were taken on Spanish expeditions to Mexico and South America. These cattle were wiry, thin, fast, they had long horns for defense, and they were hardy and drought-resistant. In North America, cattle arrived with some of the earliest European colonists. Cattle were imported to Virginia's Jamestown colony in 1611 and were imported to the Plymouth colony in 1624. These were English breeds, especially the Devon, which is one of the oldest breeds of domesticated cattle. Cattle were not just used for beef, they were also used for milk, leather, and as beasts of burden. As Americans went west, cattle went with them. The demand for beefsteak grew the same way populations and wealth grew, due to the relatively easy availability of land in the United States. Meat generally, and beef specifically, was far more available in America than it was in Europe, where the economics of meat production meant that most meat was consumed by the wealthy. In the United States, there was enough room that herds could be grown near and around cities, and that created a thriving market from early on in the nation's history. That availability of meat was also a driving force in American immigration. When the immigrants wrote letters back home in the early 19th century, their relatives often expressed disbelief when they were told that, in America, people ate meat almost every day. Meanwhile, in the Great Southwest, the descendants of the cattle brought by Columbus moved north. Herds may have been grazing in what is now Texas as early as the 16th century. As Spanish settlers and explorers did not fence their cattle, many easily escaped. On the Great Plains, they had no natural predators, and they thrived for the most part. Even Native Americans left them alone, as bison were actually tamer and easier to kill. European settlers brought European breeds to Texas in the 1820s. 
and those interbred with the wild Spanish cow created the distinct breed called the Longhorn. Mexicans had adopted the Spanish tradition of herding cattle on horseback, and that method was adopted by European settlers. After the Texas Revolution in 1836, many Mexican cattle ranchers left, leaving the cattle behind. European settlers took over the herds. As there was no method for refrigeration, those herds were raised for their leather and tallow, largely used in the making of soap, but not generally for meat. Still, ranching was a profitable business. By 1855, there were ten head of cattle in Texas, for each person. The U.S. Civil War changed the beef industry in the United States. Previously, beef in the U.S. came from a local butcher who was butchering fresh meat. While packing plants had been producing tinned meat preserved in brine in the United States since the 17th century, the demand wasn't particularly high because fresh meat was usually available. But the huge number of troops involved in the U.S. Civil War led to a great demand for tinned meat to feed those troops. And that demand was central in establishing the cattle feeding industry on the Great Plains in places like Nebraska. But the war had the opposite effect in Texas. When the Union cut off the Mississippi River in 1863, the Confederacy had no access to the Texas herds. Moreover, much of the population that tended the cattle in Texas had left to fight the war. Untended, the herds grew. When the war ended, demand in the East, fed by population growth and increasing wealth, was outstripping supply. Meanwhile, in Texas, millions of feral longhorns wandered the Great Plains. Clearly, there was a great deal of money to be made for anyone who could bring those cattle to market. Thus began the era of the cattle drive. But there was a problem. Farmers in Kansas and Missouri didn't like the Texas cattle, which damaged their farms. And longhorns carried a kind of tick that caused a disease that was usually fatal to European breeds, but to which the hardy longhorn cattle were resistant. An enterprising businessman named Joseph McCoy came up with a solution. McCoy realized that rail companies wanted more freight business, and that stockyards in Chicago were perfect for feeding the growing demand in the East. McCoy invested in a small town along the railway called Abilene, Kansas, where he built stockyards and motels. Abilene was west of most Kansas farming, and at the end of the trail that had been established to help supply the Confederacy that was called the Chisholm Trail. Ranchers in Texas could drive huge herds of cattle up the Chisholm Trail to Abilene, where the cattle would be taken by rail to Chicago, slaughtered and shipped in refrigerated cars to eastern markets. Cow towns gave reputation as raucous places where cowboys who had been riding for months spent their pay on liquor and prostitutes. Everyone got rich. The railroads, the ranchers, the stockyard owners, and Joseph McCoy. Based on his vision, more than two million cattle were moved from Abilene to Chicago between 1867 and 1881. Success of his vision is one genesis of the term, the real McCoy. Cattle ranchers expanded across the Great Plains, a term that was made easier as Native Americans were driven onto reservations and the great buffalo herds were hunted to extinction. Cattle facilitated railroads, which facilitated immigration and further drove the wars to remove the Native peoples. Ranchers kept huge herds from Texas to Canada. The Great Plains became known as the Cattle Kingdom amid the cattle boom. But the time of the Cattle Kingdom and the cowboy was short-lived. The herds competed with each other, and the land became overgrazed. Then, in 1885, a recession reduced demand, and repeated droughts and harsh winters decimated herds. The time of open-range grazing was coming to an end, and that was facilitated by two new technologies. In 1874, Joseph Glidden, a businessman from Illinois, developed a method to mass-produce barbed wire. The new wire allowed a revolution. Fencing was expensive in the West. Fences were usually made of wood, which is scarce on the Great Plains. 
wire fences were less expensive, but they tended to break when pushed by something as big as cattle. Barbed wire was stronger as it twisted two pieces of wire together, and the barbs kept the cattle from pressing against the wire. Barbed wire allowed the Great Plains to be fenced. But another technology was needed to move from the era of open range to the era of ranching. In 1854, an engineer and inventor named Daniel Halliday invented the first commercially successful design for a self-governing windmill. By the 1870s, the invention was spreading across the Great Plains. The windmill allowed a farmer or rancher to retrieve water from aquifers, freeing them from competition over water sources. A college dissertation in 1895 concluded of the windmill, Without them, we must immigrate. With them, we can irrigate. The transition was not smooth. Larger and wealthier ranchers were the first to start to use the fencing to cut off large tracts of land, sometimes well beyond their legal claims. So-called fence-cutting wars erupted and often became a form of class warfare between wealthy ranchers and smaller herdsmen and farmers. Probably the most famous of these was the Johnson County War. Fought in Wyoming between 1889 and 1893, nearly 40 people were killed in the conflict between large ranchers and smaller settlers over range and water rights, and the army was sent to intervene. Eventually, the rangeland was regulated with laws that governed the use of public lands. Cattle ranching moved largely to fenced ranches, rather than the open range. In 1906, Upton Sinclair wrote the book The Jungle, revealing abhorrent conditions in the U.S. meatpacking industry. While he was trying to address working conditions, the public was most revolted by the description of the sanitary conditions. The book resulted in the creation of many U.S. consumer protection laws and a Federal Meat Inspection Act to ensure that meat and meat products were slaughtered and processed under sanitary conditions. Demand for better quality meat led the U.S. Department of Agriculture to start grading meat in 1926. By the 1980s, over 90% of beef sold in the U.S. was graded. But the grading system favors well-marbled meats, meaning grain-fed. So today, most meat is raised on ranches, but finished in feed yards, which patent the cattle on grain. The great ranches largely disappeared, as the ranchers now centered on breeding alone. The shift to feed yards also changed the way that meat was packaged. Instead of shipping live cattle and trains to stockyards in Chicago to be slaughtered, packing houses were built next to the large feedlots, where the cattle were being raised. Now, cattle were being slaughtered right next to the place where they were being grown, and only the frozen cuts needed to be shipped. The meat changed, too, as the demand for better quality beef and ranching practices changed. Scottish Aberdeen Angus cattle were first imported to the United States in 1873. They were found to intermix easily with longhorns. The result was called a Black Angus, now the most popular beef cattle breed in America. The ready availability of beef gave rise to the food that most defines American cuisine today. In the early part of the 19th century, most immigrants from northern Europe came through the German port of Hamburg, and they brought with them local recipes for minced cooked meat. That dish became popular in American restaurants under the title Steak Hamburg Style, or Hamburger Steak. There are many claimants in the 1880s and 1890s for who invented the idea of putting hamburger steak inside two slices of bread. Who you think invented the hamburger today depends upon where you live. But whoever it was, the idea sold. Americans eat an estimated 50 billion hamburgers each year, averaging more than three hamburgers a week for every man, woman, and child in the country. McDonald's alone sells an average of more than 1,500 burgers a minute. Per capita meat consumption in the United States doubled between the 1930s and the 1960s and reached its peak in the 1970s, although it has declined some since.
Americans are still among the highest per capita consumers of beef in the world. The U.S. Department of Agriculture attributes recent declines to product shortages, which have increased the price of beef relative to chicken, but the USDA predicts that the price of beef will be declining in the next decade and demand will increase again. There are significant indications, though, that culture has changed and per capita consumption will never reach the highs that it had in the 1970s. The beef industry is facing new challenges. For example, demand for hormone and antibiotic-free beef and new threats from ever-improving plant-based meat substitutes, which are becoming more popular. And in the most dramatic innovation in the industry, in 2013, for the first time, lab-grown beef, that is beef muscle, grown in a petri dish, was ground into a hamburger and eaten. That new technology might be available at stores in the near future, as several startups are pursuing the technology. Beef production and consumption has been a large driver of American history, as economics and culture are always great drivers of history. But the effect of the beef industry on American history really does prove the adage, we really are what we eat. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy about what we just heard, what we're going to listen to, and some behind-the-scenes stuff that you only get to hear about on the podcast. What I love about episodes like this one is how unexpected the story kind of rolls out. Because you, you start with thinking about stakes, and then at the end of it, who would have thought that stakes affected American culture so much and defined so much across, I mean, entire periods of history, and not just the initial part, but into the West, and then into the even into the industrial age. Yeah, it's you know, it's there's so much that we do on on the show that is surprising, uh, and this is actually it came to me a couple of different ways. I you know, my my mother is uh, in the beef industry and is a big name in the beef industry, and so that was, part of it was coming from her. But I also have uh, I have some friends uh, in the city. I live near St. Louis uh, that we have lunch with now and again, and it's it's really just a bunch of old guys with a lot of experience. And one of those guys just came to me and started talking to me about uh, the railway coming through St. Louis with the beef, and that 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 was part of what uh, put it all together. But yeah, so many ways. I mean, because it starts with the earliest European contact with the Americas. It has yeah. to do with the Civil War and essentially the, the cattle being abandoned during the Civil War so that there were more there were more longhorns running around than there were bison running around after the war. And there was this yeah. trail that had been built for the war that they turned into the cattle trail. So the Chisholm Trail was all intimately connected to the Civil War. And then how that affected you know, settlement in Kansas. And it's incredible because it kind of defines, you know, how the how the cattle industry defined the entire Western culture. It does. Yeah. Um, and it's still if you uh, if you ask cattle drives you know, what and... is American cuisine, uh, they'll still say a hamburger, which is really a sandwich. It wasn't invented here, but it still is it's kind of what defines America. And that the, so there's so much in there that was, it was really interesting people writing home from Europe who had come and immigrated to the United States saying, I eat meat almost every day and people just wouldn't believe them. And so we, we have a lot of episodes like that. This was one uh, that there was actually there were just so many pieces bits to it that was kind of hard to fit it all in I, I wonder if i should have you know made that into multiple uh, episodes just because there's so much you know barbed wire and uh, windmills and yeah. all, the, all all related to the same thing and all related to this, this you know large trend that really affected the american economy and uh, darn it uh, i don't know if it's if it's less popular or not i still love a good steak yeah, i still love a hamburger so. <laughs> yeah that's uh there's i know that there's some people where that becomes a kind of a Kind of a political issue, but yes, for the for America, it's clearly that this is you know hamburgers. That's defined. Uh, that's an. American, I think most of us are still eating. As long as it's still legal, I'm going to be eating me steaks. That's that's how it works. <laughs> Mine is locally sourced, though. I can't say to everybody that uh, locally that's, sourced beef. Uh, See, that's good because I uh, I noticed that a lot of the places uh, not so locally sourced. And in Wyoming, uh, where I am, you know, they uh, I still you drive by signs and stuff that'll be like this is beef country. 
So they, yeah, I mean, there's there's still some stuff going I, on. I, out I don't here. know, I don't but I would imagine that quite. there are probably more cattle in Wyoming than people. It would be my guess. Yeah, Pro- that's probably true. It wouldn't take that. It wouldn't be that hard to to hit that mark. So <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I mean, um, I literally buy beef from a guy who lives two miles away from me, and and we buy it by the side, and we have. You know, uh, but uh, uh, so, I mean, it is, I mean, I, I, like I said, my mother has always been involved in the beef cattle industry. So I've always, I mean, when we were kids, you know, with steak was just like, you know, that was what we had, you know, three days a week. Uh, and so uh, yeah. it's always been a part of mine. I do love it. And, but I mean, it also uh, the, the history was, I mean, it's really fun to have my job. Because when you go research these things, even things you thought you knew about, you always find out so much. I mean, it's so fascinating. And this is one of those episodes, yeah. Um, and we, you mentioned barbed wire. Uh, the importance of barbed wire is kind of incredible mm-hmm. to to the West, and the and the fact that it was intricately tied into mm-hmm. um, uh, cattle raising and the, I mean, the there, whole there was industry. significant violence over barbed wire because that was that was the real yeah. question is how settlement worked, and and so there was I mean the range wars were really fighting over you know when you when you were it used to be free range and now that was going to be farmland and the wire was keeping them out of it and, and uh, that was originally to prevent the spread of disease from cattle that were coming up from Texas and. It's all a really an interesting story, and and probably could have yeah. done an entire episode on barbed wire itself. Yeah, because we and maybe we maybe might, we will at some might, point. Yeah. But I, I know you drive driving on the roads uh, through any of these states: Nebraska, the Dakotas, Montana, Wyoming, Kansas. Barbed wire, everything's barbed wire. It That's, is. Yeah. It's everything. There's, fenced, there's parts of Kansas where there was no wood for fences, and so the yeah. the, the uh, fence posts are rock or stone. Um, but they're still putting up the posts. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's how important. And how, how many miles of wire we spread across America and how that transformed the way the whole nation was built from what it was before. Yeah, it's it's extraordinary. Fencing off the West. Mm-hmm. And it's it's an incredible, I mean, it was a huge effort. And it did, I mean, it dramatically changed how how the how the West was used, how the land was used, and how it looked as well. And, uh, you know, I've, I've strung a, a goodly amount of wire myself. So, yeah, I grew up in South Dakota. <laughs> so yeah. I have, I've, I've built and repaired barbed wire fences. I was thinking about, I was thinking about your dad. Uh, my grandpa, George, had a, had a clock. Mm-hmm. And are on either side of the clock are all these different different barbed wires mm-hmm. for how they would fold them and stuff. I, like I that think that was actually a retirement wire. gift that he got from the Forest Service is where he got that. Yeah, and it showed all different types of barbed wire. Yeah, that thing was really cool, and it was not something. Um, it's kind of interesting that you know there's a whole history to that is that barbed wire is not all the same, and it wasn't all uh, folded and uh, uh-huh. tied tied together the same, and it was, yeah, it was probably said, you know, the I manufacturing process, and, and it, it made a huge difference when they figured out the process actually that spun the wire with the with the hooks inside yeah. it and made it much less expensive. And yeah, it's all it's it's a very interesting story, and of course that's not a surprise if you go to you know the west to farmland or whatever they'll they they're quite cognizant of the way that barbed wire changed things. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's I think it's generally I don't think it's really understood how and how that all is connected how it was the cattle drives that yeah. that that drove the need for that and then now we raise cattle completely differently than we once did uh, and that's all it's it's just very very interesting history and of course it's a, it's such a significant part of what you eat is such a significant part of culture and who you are and i think we can forget that and so we have quite a lot yeah. of episodes on food and it's surprising all the ways you know all the ways that it impacted society and culture and history and uh, you know the you know, it impacts wars it impacts impacts diseases, yeah. it impacts, you know, how, how continents it's, grow. It's it's really very fascinating uh, connection, yeah. The the one with cattle and America, it's incredible just how the uh – how how defined culture was by it because we were I mean you mentioned in the in the episode where we're we're eating meat in the Americas 
uh, well, in the United States, because we we have the space to grow it. Yeah. We have the space to take care of the cattle. yeah. In Europe at the time, only the wealthy had enough room to leave land fallow enough to raise to raise meat on it, and meat was something that that yeah. uh, common people ate fairly rarely. Uh, and so that was that was. It's really interesting that they could come here and say, you know, just just outside of the biggest city in America, within a few miles, there's land. And we're raising we're yeah. raising meat on that land, and that that was that was different, and of course that led to quite a lot of immigration in, into the United States. Of course, quite a yeah. lot of that land was was only free because uh, because you know the Colombian exchange, and we brought disease and yeah. killed off the population <laughs> that lived here before. But uh, but I mean it, it is part of certainly what defined America is that the, you know and and still I mean I uh, it's when you go to Europe. Um, it's very difficult to help people understand the distance in America, how much room there still is in America that doesn't have stuff built on it, uh, and that is yeah. that is still a measure. And, and you know, beef is still a measure of that. You know, the, the, the that we still have you know roaming cattle. We do, and I I mean I see him I see him all the time. You live in Wyoming, I live out in the West here. So it's but when you, if you you know if you you live in a city that I think you take for granted kind of exactly what that what it means to raise cattle and how we do it and all this and all that various things. But it's, it is just crazy that, you know, in, in Europe for, for such a long time that, you know, eating meat was a, was a luxury. Mm-hmm. And in the United States, um, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, Asia too. <laughs> and we talk about that a little bit in there too. I mean, meat, meat, yeah. was, meat was so rarely used that it means that it was that whole relationship with it was different. Uh, and so yeah. it's, it, it is, it is something that in some, I mean, we are not the top beef eating culture in the world. But it is still something that is so unique to the American experience and defines the American yeah. experience. And it's interesting now that there's such a you know strong dialogue uh, over you know meat and global warming and and veganism and all sorts of stuff. Uh, and I mean it, I mean we'll just see you know where where it goes with the future too. I sure hope that uh, that we continue to be able to buy steaks through my lifespan. I'll I'll let the next generation worry about it, but. I'm gonna miss it. <laughs> well, that's it's possible that that will. It's possible that how we eat meat and how we make meat will change significantly. That's, we talk it. We talk in the end about lab-grown yeah. beef, and that's not. I mean, there is a lot of uh, of you know fake protein beef out there now, but I mean the idea is that that this would yeah. be this would be genetically beef that's grown in a lab, and it's really right now you think about that and like ooh I don't know because they they like they almost 3D print these steaks and they look like they're 3D printed. Yeah. I'm like, mm. but I mean you know. Uh, it, it's it's hard to say if that's you know are are we going to be able to create something that that is, I mean literally the same you know I don't I don't know where yeah. the future's going to go and and it'll be interesting to see what a history guy hundred years from now says about you know today and if they're still yeah, raising that, cattle then or not you know that's that's what I think is interesting is you know this is this is history happening around us that we don't necessarily think about um, but it, it also makes me wonder you know um, in in the West we have the problem with wild horses. And the there since we don't use horses for work anymore, um, you know the the populations of wild horses in the West have uh, both declined and exploded, depending. And usually it's because they they live really well out here, but we don't have space for them. No one no one can take care of them. No one wants to take care of them. No one can afford to take care of them. So now we've got this issue with all these horses, and I, I wonder what happens. You know, cattle are one of the most numerous animals on this planet and that's primarily because we we eat them yeah. eat them 
So what what happens when we don't? And that's going to be that's going to be an interesting part of history too. It is, yeah. And, so this is one of those where talking about history makes you wonder for the future, and that's that's one of the reasons that yeah. we talk about history. So it is, I it does end up tying to a lot of issues, some of them hot button issues of the day. Of course, as always, the history yeah. guy. I'm not trying to make any statement about what we do with beef. I just want to say this is the role it's played in history, and that means you know when we look at it, however we're going to address it in the future, it's going to mean something about uh, about the future. Uh, and because it meant something about the past. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that whether whether you uh you know whether you're don't want to eat meat or whether we you want us to move away from meat as a culture, it's interesting it's interesting to look back and say this is how it has impacted uh culture and and history because it was significant. We know it impacted who we were as a people in history, so if 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 the if it changes, we know it's going to impact who we are in the future, uh, yeah. and then sometime a historian is going to go back and look at that. And uh, you know, that's a good story. That's, a, that's another reason to learn history, as well as the fact that you know it's just an enjoyable story. And uh, how the I mean, the railroads were built partly because of the of the beef, yeah. and then and then that that allowed us to change the you know, the whole culture with it. Magellan is sponsoring this episode of the podcast, and we'd like to thank them for making it possible for us to continue talking about history. Uh, we both really enjoy Magellan TV. We're always watching new stuff. And so the question that we always ask is, what are you watching on Magellan TV lately? I love Magellan TV. There's a lot of stuff I watch on Magellan. That's what I do with my free time. It's what I do when I'm on the treadmill. We did an episode on treadmills the other day. I, I, I didn't mention to people that I am a regular user. My treadmill doesn't have any clothes hanging on it. It really doesn't. But I just started watching a, a series, a three-episode series that's called Space Colonies. Uh, and so it, it just it ties. I love watching science fiction television when I have a chance and uh, the idea of what you know, what near science fiction is going to be. I mean, not not necessarily out in the far future, but I mean, what's what's next for humanity? And this really talks about some of that. You know, what happens if we start living in some place other than on the Earth? Three episodes in the series are each about an hour long. The first one talks about us doing things like uh, near Earth orbit, and then the next one talks about the Moon, and then the next one talks about Mars. The, those are all have been interesting parts of some uh, important science fiction movies in in the relatively recent past. Uh, and this is really talking about that from a science perspective. So I'm really, I'm really enjoying it. I'm learning an awful lot. And it reminds me, uh, you know, we, we, we've done a lot of things together, but we, we grew up playing some video games together too. I raised you guys and I used to play, I played a lot of hours of Civilization 2, uh, which I think they're probably now up to Civilization 6 or 10 or I don't know which. But anyway, in Civilization 2, you could win by, you know, by colonizing Alpha Centauri. And so uh, there's so much of the uh, animation on this one reminds me of how you used to win the game of Civilization. So it does, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where it ties to my past. It talks about, you know, how the past ties to the future. And it talks about, you know, what, what really might be occurring in the near future. So I, and one of the things I love about Magellan TV is there's just so much that you can find there. I've been watching this, this one, it's called Warrior's Way, the original superheroes. And so it's got six episodes and it talks about uh, essentially specific people and then kind of the culture that raised them to be these soldiers that they were. And so the, the episode that I was watching most re recently was on Timur or uh, Tamerlane. And he was a Mongol who lived about 180 years after Genghis Khan, and he built an empire in Central Asia. And it was it was a really it was an interesting time because as the Mongols were kind of collapsing, uh, then the whole, all these khanates and stuff built up after that. And so it's got a couple of other ones about various people in completely different eras of time, um, mostly when they're fighting with swords. Though it talks really in depth about the cultures, about what made these how what made them so good at what they mm -hmm. did, and why they were able to have such incredible impacts on history. And so Magellan is you're always able to find something like I, that. I'll have to, I have to check that one out. Yeah. 
yeah, there's there's people that are such heroes that they become legends that were very much the superheroes of the past. Yeah. They were real people. And I, I always love, it's always enjoyable. There's always something you can watch. And whether you're in a mood for a nature documentary or for a history documentary or for a science documentary or, uh, and it, boy, if you're talking history, anything you want to talk about, if you want to talk about modern history or ancient history or, or World War II or whatever, it's just, it's a great place uh, for people who, who enjoy uh, learning while they're doing their entertainment. And they're always going to be high quality. That's what Magellan promises, mm -hmm. made by documentary filmmakers. And thanks, thanks Magellan, for uh, for sponsoring our channel, too. We really enjoy working with them. And if you go to try.magellantv.com slash historyguy, we're going to have an offer for you. I think at the moment you're getting some money off of an annual membership. So if you want to give it a try and learn some stuff, right now is a great time to go to try.magellantv.com slash historyguy. Next, the history guy is going to talk about sirloin of beef. And stay tuned after the episode to hear us chat a little more with the history guy. Horton Towers in Lancashire and sits on top of a hill described as the tallest in the area. The land has been in the possession of the de Horton family, descendants of Harvey de Walter, a companion of William I, the Conqueror, and through the female line of Godiva, the Countess of Mercia, at least since the 12th century. The family first took the name Horton, spelled H-O-G-H-T-O-N, but pronounced Horton, in 1150. The current house, a fortified country manor, was built between 1560 and 1565, and some historians have asserted that a notation in a will in 1581 is evidence that a young William Shakespeare may have spent time at Horton Tower, although there is scholarly dispute over that claim. But it is known that in August of 1617, King James I stayed at Horton Tower for three days, along with several other nobles. Some scholars speculate that this visit is what prompted the king to resolve a dispute between Catholics and Puritans in Lancashire regarding sports that were permitted on Sunday, published as the Book of Sports, which allowed archery, dancing, leaping, vaulting, or any other such harmless recreation on the Christian Sabbath, but prohibited bear and bull baiting and bowling. Housing the king was expensive, even for a few days, and the cost, including providing a red carpet for the half-mile-long driveway, nearly threw the Horton family into bankruptcy. But in James I's stay at Horton Tower, one story persists. The king was rather impressed with a meal, a loin of beef, and proclaimed, "'Tis worthy of a more honorable post, being not loin, but sirloin, the noblest joint of all," and drew out his sword and in a frolic knighted it. The story is well known and popular enough that the act has been reenacted at Horton Tower, which has been restored and is today run by a trust and open to the public. And Astley Hall, a museum in Lancaster, displays a chair where the purported loin was laid for the ceremony. But before we delve into the veracity of the legend of how the sirloin got its name, we have to ask another question. What kind of meat would the king have knighted? It's an important question because if you're from the United States, your understanding of a sirloin would be different than the one that King James would have had. Because, you see, the United States and Britain use different primal cuts when butchering cattle. Primal cuts are the large pieces of meat originally separated from a carcass during butchering, and different countries do primal cuts differently. They're distinct from prime cuts, which refer to the quality of the meat. What the Americans called the sirloin, the British called the rump. So if James I was knighting a sirloin, it wouldn't have been the sirloin steak that you get in the U.S., but rather would have come from either the primal cut that Americans call the short loin, where you get the T-bones, porterhouses, and strip steaks, or farther forward in the cut the Americans called the rib. 
Well, the British cut does include a rib. It's called a fore rib and produces the cuts that Americans call short ribs. But the British sirloin includes the part of the American rib where we get the roast called prime rib, which would seem more likely to be worthy of knighthood than the relatively inexpensive U.S. sirloin, a cut of meat from which the British use the less than complimentary name rump steak. And that all might be useful to you the next time that you go to a steakhouse, but it doesn't help to answer the question about whether it would be appropriate to tell the waiter at that steakhouse that the name sirloin came because King James I knighted a prime rib in 1617. But before we can delve into the question of whether the name sirloin comes from a piece of meat being knighted, it's important to note that the story of King James I is not the only such story. Rather, the story has been told many times. In addition to James I, it has been attributed to Charles II, a fitting character as he was a jolly king popularly known as the Merry Monarch, and so the type who might knight a roast. But the story has also been attributed to Elizabeth I, who reigned 60 years before Charles, and who, according to a 19th century ballad, decreed, while the queen rules the realm, let Sir Loin rule the roast. And a church history of Britain, written in 1655, attributes the event to Elizabeth's father, Henry VIII, who was, it was said, fond of food. In that description, an abbot, watching the king eat a joint of beef heartily, proclaimed that he would pay 100 pounds to have such a stomach, since his was weak and queasy. The king responded by putting the abbot in the tower and feeding him only bread and water, so that when offered a good meal of beef, he was so starved that he ate heartily. The king then demanded his 100 pounds for having fixed the abbot's stomach, and, according to the account, knighted the beef for good behavior. An even more quizzical account on the World Wide Web describes the knighting as having been done by King Henry Thirteenth, which is why you shouldn't believe things you read on the World Wide Web. But the general conclusion is that the term sirloin predates any of these stories and was originally spelled many different ways, with the spelling S-I-R-L-O-I-N with an I not coming until the 19th century. The consensus is the etymology of the word sirloin comes from the French sur, S-U-R, meaning above and referred to the cut of meat above the loin. Which is odd, because the French use different primal cuts than both the British and the Americans, and there is no cut called a loin or a sirloin. And so even if the name sirloin has nothing to do with the knighting of a piece of meat, it is still a rather obvious pun, so much so that the name sirloin of beef appears in not one but two episodes of Bugs Bunny cartoons, 1949's Rabbit Hood and Nighty Night Bugs, which won the Academy Award for Best Animated Short Film in 1959, the only Bugs Bunny cartoon to be so honored. And so it is quite possible that any or all of the monarchs mentioned availed themselves of this simple pun in jest at some time during their reign, and as they were the king or queen, you can guess that whoever was at the table with them laughed as if it was the most original joke they'd ever heard. Before you did this episode, I had literally never thought about the, the name sirloin coming from a loin of beef being knighted. It's apparently a really well-known story, but it just never even occurred to me to wonder. But it's, I mean, sirloin did not come from that. It was sirloin before that. But yeah, it is such a funny, it's such an obvious joke. And you can just imagine royalty going, yeah. oh, I knight you sirloin of beef. Whoa, how clever am I? And everybody in the room is, of course, going, oh, you're the first one who has ever thought of that joke, your majesty. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great story, yeah. Because and so did you know did you know the story before you did the episode? I, you know, did you we were watching story? another show on television and about two guys that were buying stuff, uh, uh, you know, buying stuff out of out of uh, uh, like used shops and stuff like that, right? So they were you know so they were collecting antiques, uh, and and one of them bought this picture uh, of James 
lighting the beef. And I'm like, what? I've never heard of that. Is that real? And I looked it up. So that's how that happened. We saw that on TV. And it turned out to be just a delightful story that it really it really happened. It really happened apparently multiple times. It's, it's kind of his running joke. Uh, and uh, and then it gave me some time to talk about beef and why, you know, beef's cut differently in France than in England. And we have different names yeah. for the... Yeah, so it's... That was... I mean, all of it's really, really yeah, interesting yeah. to learning. I Who, who knew... Oh, well, I didn't. Somebody did. But I didn't know that, that uh, you know, what we call sirloin in the U.S. is not what they call sirloin in yeah, the U.K. Yeah. And, and that the French, yeah, different... French don't even have a sirloin. <laughs> yeah, it's, so they're all – and it's all completely different kind of meat and, and yeah. So, I mean, that's yeah. just how you cut it. It's, it ended up being, a, you know, a great, like, leverage point to talk about some really interesting bits of history and, and put some pieces together. And it was fun. Yeah. It was a fun episode to write. It was one of those two where I hadn't – I'd never seen that before. But there is, uh, you know, there is a place in England. There's a manor that, that uh, really – their big selling point. If you want to go have a wedding there, is that's where they, the you know, the meat that's was where they knighted. knighted. Yes, it's just uh, you only mentioned it briefly, but you know the the family there mm-hmm. having to the Horton family having to mm-hmm. provide a half mile of red carpet mm-hmm. for the driveway so that the king the king can walk up is. That's is, I mean that's we might come back to that sometime and talk about that because I mean it literally it, it pretty much bankrupted them. To, to it's host, objectively host hysterical too. Uh, so it's almost like the king is a white elephant. I mean, that's how it works. Yeah. yeah. And and I was at another uh, manor uh, in uh, in the UK once, and they had they had hoped that the king would visit, and they had they had designed all these rooms around the idea of a royal visit, and then they never came. Hmm. So these bedrooms are still there waiting for the king. You know, and <laughs> uh, uh, so, probably not going to show up at this so, point. <laughs> so I mean, that was that was it. Really shows you know how how the aristocracy worked and what it was like, and you know they might show up and and uh, and it could change everything. But uh, the fact that they almost went bankrupt because they had to buy red carpet so that the king could walk on for red the carpet whole the whole driveway. distance. You have to wonder if the king was. I mean, if he had a grudge against him, you know. Uh, and, yeah. Right. So I mean, did he? He had to have had some idea. I mean, that what this meant to them to try to be hosting the king. So it. It also seems. Honestly, like it must have been like, I'm sure they all took it very seriously, but trying to imagine him uh, with uh, just probably an army of courtiers and people around him stately walking down the this mud road on a on a red on a carpet, red carpet that's... yeah i mean are they taking this stuff seriously so um, there's a there's yes, another like... story that's popped up in a couple of episodes about the the legend of gotham of of of, of mm-hmm. goat uh the goat pens it was a, and that was actually a town in nottinghamshire and and the the king was going to go through town and that would make their town through road a royal road and they could charge a fee for it and so they they men ran around and, and pretended they were crazy and when the king's when his when his retainers saw that they thought that that insanity could be contagious, uh, and they went around <laughs> the town rather than go through the town. And so they're 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 people that you know were wise by being crazy, and that was all to keep the king from walking across the, the middle of town. <laughs> we don't watch this so, out here. This so is a problem. If you, th- you think it's good to be king, I, it's really it really shows what people thought of the kings. So it is it's yeah, a fascinating it's fascinating how the whole history of that worked and what it meant to them, and 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 uh, you know it's still. Yeah, especially for we Americans, it's kind of hard for us to understand the whole idea of why we're keeping royalty around and why why you ever spent that much money on the carpet. But I think it even is probably more telling if you're there in the UK to see how that once was and what it really meant, you know, that your whole family might, you know, go under because the king came to visit yeah. and had to buy more red carpet than the county could afford. Because we, we dramatize it in so much fiction. We do so much of the oh, you yeah. know, the ancient kings and how how gorgeous everything looked and the opulence mm-hmm. that they lived in. And all I can think is that it a lot of what actually happened would we would see it as farcical. Today. It would. 
it would just it would look it would look stupid. Someone should dramatize <laughs> the story with all all the all the period pieces that they're doing on royalty and stuff like. Someone should dramatize the story and and show them scrambling to find the red carpet so that the king could come. Because I took a class in college called the History of the Medieval City, and one of the things we talked about was spectacle and how it was um, very very carefully presented so like it, this was about like the hundred years war with the with the, the the british king comes in the english king comes through and the french king comes through and they both like have these huge parades when they do it and every symbol on their floats and what they were wearing everything meant something and had very specific and overt uh, connotations to it and it's interesting because when i think of it that you know some guy comes in wearing a gaudy like deer on his head and he's riding on a float that's all painted blue and like it all it all ends up looking just silly like what is what is this but they were all very specifically meant to and mm-hmm. it's as a, as a matter of culture that's that's interesting and that's exactly where this where the sort of loin falls well how into. different is that from what we do with the homecoming parade i don't know but uh, yeah uh... i mean right that's the stuff that stuff that i mean that's the which was kind of what we t- talked about in the class was that uh, there are lots of things that we understand as symbolic in music videos and television and stuff like that. You know, if like if they have gold or something like that, we understand that that means, oh, they're wealthy, that kind of stuff. Is that even even those simple things we take for granted, those aren't always true. And that the stuff that they did in the Middle Ages, we might now not understand and not get it, but it, it was sending specific messages. Um, and that's and that's interesting. And I, I think that, you know, the whole story that this this whole story about Sirloin is kind of a joke <laughs> right is that the, the whole episode turns into like oh this is all it, it's funny it's entertaining it's mm-hmm. enjoyable and it ties kind of nicely into the the ridiculousness of those courtly manners of mm-hmm. oh they have to do all these very specific things um because it's really funny and we kind of mentioned that a little earlier that to imagine you know james the first knighting this knighting this uh, prime rib <laughs> mm-hmm. the sirloin and he's it's not that he was knighting a loin Something they called the loin of beef. It was already called a sirloin of beef, and he was just making a very big show yeah, just pun, about yeah. a low, a low hanging pun. Yes, and yes. the fact that everyone around him had to just act oh so. Oh, oh, yes. And you wonder then how many of those you're, jokes there were if they were doing that all the time, and how drunk oh, they must so have been clever, too. Yeah. Sir. They're also, you know, you can't drink the water at the time, so those guys might have been fifteen pints in too by the time they were laughing. At yeah, the, the kind of the kind of joke that these days would earn nothing but groans. Dad joke, and yeah, they had yeah. To... yes, king king <laughs> jokes are essentially just the old version of dad jokes. And they have to. Everybody's laughing so hard at it because they're like, "We don't want to insult the oh, king." He'll, oh, he'll your us. Majesty, your famous oh, humor. So... Oh, <laughs> well, you don't want to end up like the the story That's of the Henry the Eighth, the the dude putting that the, he starved him uh, so that tower. <laughs> So he can eat the meat as if, yeah, no, you don't want to. Yeah, it's a, it's an enjoyable, it was another one that was really enjoyable to do the research. And it's one of those things where you wouldn't have guessed that that was something you could talk about. And it was, and it's, it's worth talking about. It's, it's a fun story. A piece of history that is entertaining. It was entertaining at the time, I'm sure, for everybody. And now for us, we can look back at it and we can laugh at, oh, the simpler times of the medieval ages so. when a king could yeah. make that pun. <laughs> That's well. We hear we hear worse today. I mean, you, I wonder. That's, I that's wonder fair. what they would think of the humor that we put, say, on television on a nightly basis. I honestly don't know. But uh, it is part of the what's very fun about doing the job that that we get to do is that you get to go research just goofy things that are just parts of history. It deserves to be remembered because it's a good story. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. 
We hope you enjoyed these stories of forgotten history, and if you did, you can find more on our YouTube channel at The History Guy, History Deserves to be Remembered. We will continue to release podcasts every other week, so stick around if you want more podcasts on forgotten history. You can also find us on our website, thehistoryguy.net, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Rumble, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.